Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Let's take a look at our text, our working text, just so we're reminded of what we're doing. And this is Song of Songs chapter four, and we'll we'll read verses one through five, and then we're going to spring back forward so we can pick up where we left off last lesson last week, and again go back to this interaction among Yeshua, an unnamed woman who has an alabaster vial of perfume and a Pharisee named Shimon. But here's how it says, because we're the link we're making here, if you'll remember, it's your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilad. Well, the, the veil is a subject that we've, we've touched on that a little bit. I just finished a, a series at, um, in the recording studio called More Than a Scarf the, that breaks down some of the elements of, of the, the head covers. But the veil, of course, is is linked here to her hair. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. That's going to be one of our links to both of the alabaster women, that the fact that they would wash Yeshua's feet with their hair. That's a distinct thing that links the two incidents together. And it's also a distinct thing, the hair, that's going to link them both back to this particular prophecy. It says, your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep, which have come up from their watering place, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost her young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is beautiful. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. And of course, you know, with the the slices of pomegranate, if you cut a pomegranate in half, of course, it exposes those ruby red pips inside. And those pips of the pomegranate represent commandments. It's, you know, you'll see people sometimes sit around counting the pomegranates to see if there really are 613 pips in a pomegranate, because they, they do represent the commandments of the Torah. We have the lips, like a scarlet thread. You have two lips which is consistent with the twinning or the pairs that we see in in this particular text. Uh, But it says they're like a scarlet thread. And the scarlet, if you'll remember, is one of the symbols that it can be is redemption, a scarlet thread of redemption. And it can also, which it's kind of linked to the idea of redemption, is that it's uh, protection from judgment, protection from judgment. Now, it can, it's got another side to it. There's another side to it, which is going to represent sin. Like, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. But there's a positive side to scarlet. Each each Hebrew word is going to be a contronym. It can stand as its own opposite. And so the the good side of the, the scarlet is going to be a symbol of redemption. And not just redemption, but protection from judgment. And the the hint to that is in Proverbs 31, where it's talking about the Proverbs 31 woman, which is a parable of the Holy Spirit. And it says, you know, she clothes her family in scarlet and they have no fear of the snow. Well, if you go back to the book of Job, snow, it says, 
is reserved in storehouses against the day of judgment. So what's the symbolism of snow? Snow represents judgment. But there again, what's the flip side? What's the contronym of snow? Is it just judgment? No, it can also represent purity, the, the cleansing from sin. And so right there, we have a, a very interesting prophecy that the bridegroom is, is looking at his bride and saying, your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your mouth is beautiful. Her mouth has been redeemed. Her lips have been redeemed. You know, the, the temple's like pomegranates. She, he can see in her the commandments that are active. So that's that's very beautiful. Not only is she she walking in the commandments, she's been redeemed and her whole family is protected against the day of judgment because of his redemption. So that's that's very nice, very nice. So let's let's keep going. Let's look at our alabaster vial here. And last week we looked at the beginning of the story in Luke in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. If you have your Bible, it's not a bad idea to open to Luke chapter 7, because at some point we might go back and, and look at something that happens just prior to this that's going to be important. It, it's going to set the stage for what has just happened when this woman bursts into a Pharisee's house where Yeshua is reclining at the table, and she begins to pour out this perfume on his feet and to wash his feet with her tears. And we know that he's in the home of a, a Pharisee named Shimon. And Shimon is, is saying to himself, if, if he knew, if this man were really a prophet, he would know that this woman is a sinner. Well, it's interesting because at the beginning of the account there, it says she was a sinner. So we, we don't know at what point she was and at what point she is. But clearly in the Pharisee's mind, He's not going to let her be anything but a sinner, regardless of what his eyes are seeing. He wants to establish the fact that he, you know, he's looking at a sinner. And it seems as though with Yeshua, he's looking at a woman who was a sinner. And sometimes that's difficult. You know, when we've built a really bad reputation, sometimes it's hard for people to let us go, to, to set us free from that bondage of that bad reputation. But Yeshua wants to make a point with him. And so Yeshua responded and said to him, Shimon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. And here's the, the story that Yeshua tells. A money lender had two debtors. The one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he canceled the debts of both. So which of them will love him more? Shimon answered and said, I assume the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Shimon, do you see this woman? Now, this is a, this is a great question. Do you see this woman? Shimon, do you see what I see? Because it's not as if Shimon could not see her. She's invited herself into his house and began, you know, washing the feet of his guest. How could he not see her? But Yeshua wants him to see her. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she has not stopped kissing my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, 
but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And then those who were reclining at the table with him began saying to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, this is an incredible transaction. Absolutely incredible. And when Yeshua uses an example, it's not random. I don't think he's just making it up as he goes along. These uh, stories that he tells to illustrate a lesson, they're very carefully put together. So our question is, why did Yeshua, to explain this situation to Shimon, use money as an analogy? I think what he's doing is he's taking the Pharisee to Pharisee school. Yeah. You can write that one down. He's taking the Pharisee to Pharisee school. By the way, we can tell from the things that Yeshua says and does that he practically was a Pharisee, even if he didn't identify with the sect because of their interpretations and applications of particular doctrines. He was very closely aligned with the Pharisaical school of Hillel. Hillel was a very merciful application of the Torah, very welcoming to the Gentiles. The other Pharisaic school was the school of Shammai. And these two schools were always arguing with one another. And and sometimes it got to the point of murder, but they were often infighting. But it it was the Pharisees who really formulated the, the doctrine of resurrection that we believe to this day, they so much of what Paul teaches in his letters is taken from taken from Pharisaic applications of scriptures. That's why I wrote the book Pharisee, Friend or Foe, because so many times, because Yeshua takes the Pharisees to Pharisee school, we assume they were all bad people. But the truth is, he's actually urging them to act according to what they're preaching. In other words, practice what you preach. And I think he even says that, you know, you hypocrites practice what you preach. And we do that. We do the same thing. We preach things that we don't practice. And, you know, he would treat us no differently if he were here today. If he could see that we were behaving in a hypocritical manner, he would tell us, practice what you preach. The way he does it now is through his word. So as we're reading about Shimon the Pharisee, who's having trouble releasing this woman from her sins and the reputation she has gained because of her sins, we have to look at our own lives and say, is there anybody I've not forgiven? Is there anybody I can't release from their sins? Now, it doesn't mean if somebody's tried to do physical harm to you or emotional harm to you that you let them right back into your life just to you know, start abusing you again. That's not what we're talking about. But we're talking about somebody who has repented and needs forgiveness, and they need to be able to go on their lives without this horrible reputation attached to them. Because often, I think that does prevent people from repenting. They don't think that their community will ever forgive them, much less forget. So Yeshua takes this Pharisee to Pharisee's school, and and I'm going to show you how he does that. Okay, so these are. what I have here in, on the, the PowerPoint, if you can see it, 
Some people will be listening, they won't be able to see it. But um, there is a book called uh, Sefer HaChinuk. And what that is, it's pretty old work that takes each of the 630, 613 commandments and explains each one, one by one. It takes each commandment one by one and explains them in a, in a fairly simple way. It's a really great reference book if you like reference books. And again, it will give you a really good idea of how over time each of these commandments was applied. And again, we have to say it was because of the Pharisees, because eventually their, their applications, interpretations, debates, they ended up in a, in a work called the Mishnah. And then it worked its way into the Talmud, uh, which was not finished until the medieval period. But it gives you a glimpse into how were these things historically applied? How were the, because the, the Pharisees really were the winners, the Sadducees died out. You know, remember, they didn't believe in a resurrection. Uh, but it was the Pharisees who eventually kind of morphed into what we would know today as rabbinic Judaism. In the first century, there was no Judaism. There were Judaisms. But we can see often by looking at the Mishnah, the debates, how they worked through the problems of applying the Torah, the thought process. And so we, we can go there and say, hey, wait a minute, this is highly likely the way that Shimon was supposed to think about this situation, because what is recorded here reflects how the Pharisees were applying this and how they were interpreting this. And the Pharisees, as, as they're working through the, the commandments in commandment number uh, 66, well, I mean, we can we can back up all the way to commandment number 63. We are not to oppress a gear or a stranger. They they interpret this as a convert. Commandment number 64, don't wrong a convert or a stranger in matters of property. Commandment number 65, don't afflict orphans and widows. Commandment number 66, lend to the poor if you're able. If you're able, if you're not able, you're not able. But if you're capable of doing it without sending yourself to the poorhouse, then lend to the poor. And the, the idea of number 66 here is why is it a commandment to lend to the poor if you're able? Because if you can intervene early in his problem, then he may never have to sell his services as a Hebrew servant. You know, the, the Hebrew servant serves for six years and the seventh he goes free. Well, that, that's kind of an indentured servitude. And if people help him at the beginning and they don't charge interest, which is the next commandment, it's joined to it, not to dun a poor person unable to pay the debt. See, if you didn't lend to him, commandment number 66, at the beginning of his problem, then he will go to a loan shark or he will go to somebody that pays or that demands high interest. And then over time, that interest will accumulate and eventually the interest will bury him and he'll find himself unable to pay the debt. And so if somebody has accumulated a debt, then we are not to humiliate that person. In fact, again, this is kind of looking at the way the Pharisees apply this. They say you are to see yourself as the borrower in the transaction. If somebody owes you money, then put yourself in their sandals. And they say, don't act like a creditor. Don't lord it over them. Don't humiliate them. It's um, 
you know, don't publicly shame the person who is unable to pay his debt. Put yourself in their place. Would you want to be humiliated? You know, you don't, if you're on your friends and something, you don't bring that conversation. Hey, you remember I loaned you, you know, um, trying to make yourself look good. Don't do that. And then commandment number 68 is don't even help a borrower or a lender to transact a loan at interest because the interest is what buries you. If this is your brother or sister, then loan them the money if you were able to do it because they'll end up often in those days, things were a little less predictable and somebody could fall on some hard times and then they find themselves unable to pay that debt and then the interest just keeps accumulating. And so the the commandment here, which is, you know, this is coming from Exodus 22, if possible, we are supposed to treat favorably, favorably those who are with us, with us. In other words, a fellow Israelite, somebody who also is trying to walk in the Torah, somebody who is also in our community. And even though we could loan to an outsider and collect interest because they're not within the community. If you see an opportunity within the community, don't fail to loan to them simply because you know you, you're you not allowed by the Torah to collect interest from them. So all of these commandments, this little bundle of commandments from 63 to 68, the Pharisees had a lot to say, you know, in practicality, how do we apply this? And here's, you know, the their reflection on one of the commandments was if somebody owes you money and you take their garment as a pledge, then at sundown, you take that garment back to them because he says they need that garment to stay warm at night, just like the the lower millstone. If you take a millstone and pledge and give it back to them, they have to grind their bread. It's a reminder that they owe you money, but you're not to use it to make them even more miserable and humiliated than they already are. And here's just a a summary of the thoughts about this. Uh, This says the rationale for the prohibition against taking a person's garment so that he is deprived of it at night is found in the ancient belief that every night when one is asleep, his soul ascends to heaven to give an account of itself. Each night it is found to be in debt for the day before. Nevertheless, in his grace and mercy, the father returns the soul to its body. This happens over and over each day of his or her life. If the Holy One returns to us, our indebted soul each morning, then how much more we should return a person's garment at sunset until the debt is finally paid. And it says, even if he must do it every single day until the debt is fully paid. And you realize this is the this is the creditor who carries the garment back to the debtor. You would think the debtor would be following the creditor around saying, can I have my, my garment back? It's going to get cold tonight. No, the Torah flips it on us. It says, you must follow this debtor, find the debtor and return this garment to him at night. It's the opposite of what we would think. And they say, this is just demonstrating the mercy of Adonai. He doesn't want us to be any more miserable than we have to. You know, in terms of the debt, he wants us to repent. He wants us to go to him and ask him for forgiveness. He he wants us to seek him out. But every single night, you know, remember, we do our, our Shema, we do our prayers uh, evening and morning. So 
if he's going to return his soul to you in the morning, that's awesome. But you know what? Every evening when you lay down at night, you have a chance. He will be right there in your room. If you want to repent of the things you did that day, he will return your garment to you every evening and every morning until that debt is fully paid. If you want to, if you want to repent, he will forgive the debts of the day. So we don't have to really go chasing after him to repent. He's actually standing right there waiting for us to repent. And he says, okay, here's your garment back. Here's your dignity back. So Yeshua is using this analogy of a money lender for a reason, because in those times, and you can see this from Pharisee school, that the soul is equated to a kind of a debt. When we sin, the soul acquires a debt, and the Holy One returns this indebted soul to us each morning, right? Now, Yeshua also teaches this. He teaches it as well. Um, in this case, Peter's asking a question about forgiveness. And Yeshua is going to use another money lending parable to help illustrate the lesson. And by the way, Peter's complete name was Shimon Kepha. Shimon Kepha in Hebrew. And so when he's talking to Shimon the Pharisee. I, I, I wonder if it's on purpose that we've got two Shimons here who are getting a money lenders parable to help them understand what's right in front of them. But here's what Peter says. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him up to seven times. Yeshua said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. You see the, the comparison here with Shimon the Pharisee, it went from 500 to 50. Um, and so in this parable, it goes from 10,000 down to 100. And he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And of course, that's from Matthew 18, 21 through 35. So 
this you know example that's given to Shimon Kefa, Simon Peter, this helps us understand a little bit better, I think, why Yeshua was using the the money lender as the example because to to Yeshua in his mind, it's about forgiveness. This particular debt is about forgiveness. In the parable that that he tells Shimon the Pharisee, it's also about forgiveness because following his example, he tells the woman, your sins are forgiven you, your faith. You've come to me in faith and you are forgiven. And this is even before Yeshua died on the cross, uh, which I've got some thoughts about that, but that's a different lesson. What we can conclude here, and by the way, when you see slave in this particular parable, don't think of a slave that's you think more of again of an indentured servitude. Typically, slaves that weren't going to be transacting uh, debts such as this. There, there was an agree of autonomy because sometimes scripture will use, or not scripture, but translators will say slave instead of servant. And when we read servant, sometimes we can also read employee. That this is kind of a hired hand sort of situation. And then if if somebody couldn't pay a debt, then they're, we would say they're a slave, but it's actually an indentured servant. They go into servitude until the debt is paid off. But it's, it's not the slave that, that we're familiar with. At any rate, what we see is that Shimon needed to forgive this alabaster woman. And Yeshua says, from your heart, from your heart. And often that happens. We can nod if somebody asks our forgiveness. We can say, okay, we can say whatever, but it takes a long time sometimes for it to work its way to our hearts. But we have to remember sometimes the difficulty of repentance for people is if they have acquired a a terrible reputation as a sinner. Unforgiveness on the part of their community, unwillingness to allow them to be forgiven might be the very hindrance that holds them back from repenting. It's it's a difficult thing to be buried by a mountain of sin because it's really hard to see from there. So what about this alabaster woman with her mountain of sins that, that we looked at from the Psalm last week? Remember, she was piled under a mountain of sins and surrounded by a, a wall of trouble. Well, to help us pull all this together, not just the psalm from last week, not just Song of Songs chapter four, not just the alabaster woman, let's see if we can find the context for why this alabaster woman would have recognized Yeshua as the one who could forgive her when it seems like nobody else does. Because you you can see in the reaction, like, why is he forgiving sins? Everybody else around her including Shimon, who's saying, well, if you were a prophet, you would know she's a sinner. Nobody else but this woman recognizes Yeshua for who he is. So we're going to back up to Song of Songs chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Because I'm interested at this point, you know, we looked at verses 1 through 3 previously. I'm interested at this point, how did she get buried under a mountain of sin? In a, in a small community like this, she's most likely, it looks like Yeshua is still in a, a village called Nain in the lower Galilee. And this is one of those things that if everybody didn't know everybody, they probably knew somebody who knew you. Uh, <laughs> I think it's that way to this day sometimes. But I'm interested 
not just in why this woman who was buried in a mountain of sin recognized Yeshua, but I'm interested in how she recognized him. Why did she, how did she recognize him? Let's just read this context and, and put it into the setting of what's happening with the woman and Yeshua at the, the dining table at Shimon's house. It says, draw me after you and let's run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Um, other translations will say like a, a banqueting hall. The king has brought me into his banqueting hall. Because there, remember three times it says Yeshua was reclining at the table. And when the woman heard that Yeshua was reclining at the table, this is what motivates her to go in and start anointing his feet. So the king has brought me to his, his banqueting table. We will rejoice in you and be joyful. We will praise your love more than wine. Rightly, do the young women love you? Right. Now, that was what they're calling the chorus. So I, I'm taking a, a second glance. You know, perhaps it's just not random that it says we will praise your love more than wine. Because I'm looking for what, how did this woman get buried in sin? It could have had something to do with wine. Was she an alcoholic? There's a hint. I don't know. We can't really tell. But here's how the bride responds. She says, I am black and beautiful. Okay, black and beautiful. All right. She is black can represent, you know, the stains of sin. But remember, black is also a sign of life. Uh, you know, if you're looking for a leper, you look for a black hair and that black hair will tell you that they may have been diseased before, but if the leprosy is retreating, then the black hair will come up. So again, it's a contronym. There's two sides to black. But in this case, she says, I'm black and beautiful, black and beautiful. If there was something wrong before, now I'm alive and I'm beautiful. I want you to consider me beautiful. It says, you daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not stare at me because I am dark, for the sun has tanned me. In other words, I've been out working. I've been out working. And here's what she says about that work. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me caretaker of the vineyards, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Okay, her mother's sons would be her brothers. And to understand the vineyard comment, remember, sometimes a wife can be symbolized by a vineyard or a vine. The prophecy says, your wife shall be like a fruitful vine round about your table. And this woman who has come into the king's chambers, she's recognized who Yeshua is more than a prophet, the one who can forgive sin. She has come into his banqueting table and she has loved him. And that's exactly the, the words that Yeshua uses when he's explaining this to Shimon. He uses love. You know, if, if your debt, if you have had much debt forgiven, you will love much. And this woman here, she's, she's part of the daughters of Jerusalem, but yet she's apart from the daughters of Jerusalem because they're staring at her. She's apparently different in her appearance. There's a darkness 
that they're staring at. But what happened here? It says, my mother's brothers were, my mother's sons were angry with me. They made me caretaker of the vineyards. There's a hint here. If we look at the symbolism, if they, if they were angry, if her brothers were angry with her, and we know some of the context was a debt. Some of the context was a debt. Her mother's sons made her take care of other vineyards, caretaker of the vineyards. The idea here is it's possible that her brothers could have sold her into a slavery. It's, it's possible that they sold her into a prostitution because if, if the fruitful vine is the if the woman is the fruitful vine and she's saying, I have been taking care of other vineyards, but not my own. I don't have my own husband. I don't have my own family because my something that my brothers did put me into other people's vineyards. So if that's the case here, if, if she has been prostituted, then you can imagine why she would feel like there was no way to climb out of that mountain of sin. But she's trying to explain to the daughters of Jerusalem that she's beautiful, that she's repented, that she wants to walk in the commandments. She, she, I don't think she would have chosen this for herself, but we have to understand the day. We have to understand the time. We have to understand a woman's helplessness. That's why there's such a strong imperative in Torah to take care of the widows and the orphans, because there really weren't job opportunities. There just wasn't much out there as a job opportunity that wouldn't put you into jeopardy, especially for women and young girls into a sexual jeopardy. It was very risky not to have a husband or to have responsible sons to take care of you if you were a female. Those are two thoughts, just from the context. Those are two of the thoughts. Perhaps there was a, an alcohol addiction that led to sin. Perhaps as a young girl, she had been prostituted and sent into households, not just to wash dishes. Whatever it was, she's sick of it. She's absolutely sick of it. And in that day and time, I'm sure she was in despair thinking, how will I ever shed this reputation that I have. It's not that I wanted to. And she's in the home of a man who should be willing to forgive this debt of sin, not to hold it against her if she's repenting. And clearly she is. Clearly she is. She's, it's not like she's at the temple where she can bring a pigeon and make a sacrifice and say, I don't want to do this anymore. But she's brought the most expensive thing that she has. And she's poured it out on Yeshua. Because she recognizes the bridegroom. She recognizes the king. And we know, again, the, the kisses. What, what do the kisses have to do? And I, I'm sure that Yeshua is using these play on words and explaining this to Shimon. Because remember, she's kissing his feet. Kisses in Hebrew, nishkot, nishkot. Uh, singular is neshek, neshek. Nishkot would be kisses, neshekot. But it has a it has has a dual meaning. It means a creditor, a creditor. It's I don't know if it's I've tried to figure this out. How could the same word mean a creditor and a kiss? But it can also mean a weapon too. Like Judas betrayed Yeshua with a kiss. Uh, his kiss was a weapon, a creditor. Well, if you think about the way kisses work, typically, I mean, if we're talking about a social kiss, you know, the kiss kiss. 
then the obligation is for the person to kiss you back, right? They don't just stand there like a statue, they kiss you back. And so uh, is that how it works? I don't know. But in this context, Yeshua is talking about forgiveness. And it seems as though the townspeople, including Shimon, it's like dunning the woman. They're refusing to give her help so that that sin interest didn't pile so high, she couldn't even find her way out from the mountain of sin. And this is the idea. If we can see somebody headed down a path of alcoholism or drug abuse, we should try to help in the beginning. We should try before the interest and the addiction piles so high, they think there's no way out. Because you and I know how fast people are are committing suicide nowadays, how many young people and old people have just lost hope that there's anybody there who can help them. But we have the good news. That woman touching her hair to Yeshua's feet, she has recognized the good news. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. This woman realizes this is the man who can forgive her sins. There's hope. There's hope that can lift me up of this, out of this reputation that I have. The people who wouldn't help me at the beginning. What if her brothers did sell her into prostitution? What if they did farm her out, so to speak, into other vineyards? Why did someone not help? If the family had a debt that big, why would their brothers and sisters not loan them money before the interest piled too high for her to find her way out? Why would anybody ever sell? their daughter or their sister into a situation like that. When you see things happening early, our obligation, according to Torah, is to intervene early before they're buried under it. You know, and of course, sometimes people don't want our help, but sometimes we just walk right by it and we have to start praying, you know, Father, show me those places where I've been walking by somebody who needs my intervention up front. Somebody who needs my kiss instead of becoming beholden to a a creditor. Somebody who needs a good answer. Somebody who needs counseling. And it's, it's not that you really have to go out of your way. The Torah indicates here that these are things that are just going to happen as you go through your everyday life. You're going to run into these needy people and you need to be an advocate for them. And like I said, it's a neshek is a kiss or a creditor, and it comes from neshak, neshak, which means to strike with a sting like a serpent. And so it came to mean to oppress somebody with interest on a loan, to charge interest on a loan. And and that's why I say Shimon just got taken to Pharisee school because it, it was their applications of this of Exodus 22, 24, where it says, if you lend people money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. So it was the Pharisees' applications that were constantly urging grace, helping whenever you can, intervening at the beginning before they go to someone who will charge them interest because that interest will bite them like a serpent. That's what interest does. So it also came, nashak, it came to mean more than just to kiss. It can also mean a weapon. So if we can intervene in somebody's life with a kiss, with an endearment, 
with an interest-free loan, then we might be preventing that person from falling into ruin because the interest that he will pay on a debt, and, and this is just to make it, we're not talking about helping somebody buy a yacht, you know, or a new fishing boat, uh, you know, or uh, I don't know, a Tesla. We're not talking about things like that. We're talking about saving somebody from ruin, from having a roof over their heads, from not being able to get their medicine. In this day and time, sometimes it's insurance. Sometimes it's hard to pay insurance. It's, it's, it's one, I mean, you may as well get a yacht is to pay insurance sometimes. We're talking about necessities, things that, that you need to have to live and to go to work and so forth. These are ways that we need to intervene early before it's too late. But I think the, the great thing about this particular interaction, I think it's linked to something else that occurred just before the woman brings in the alabaster, alabaster flask. If we back up in Luke 7, and that's why I say if you, you have your Bible open, just back up in Luke 7 from this story, and you can see that uh, Yeshua resurrects a widow's son in name. He resurrects a widow's son in Nain. Um, Nain is also called Navi, Navi, because there's a mountain there adjacent to it that's called Navi, which is the prophet. Uh, it's in the lower Galilee, small village. And then there's another place. There's a, a big hill called Moreh, which means teacher. So it's the hill of the teacher. And then there's a mountain called Navi or prophet. Now does it start to make sense to you? why this particular event would have happened right after this resurrection of the young man, of the widow's son, in name. And remember, Shimon, when Yeshua says, Shimon, I have something to say to you. He says, say it, teacher. Say it, teacher. Well, teacher in Hebrew is moreh. And they're probably very near. There's no indication in the text that Yeshua moved on from Nain after he resurrected this boy from the dead. It looks like he's still in the same place. So this is pretty profound. And so if he were a prophet, if he were a Navi, so the, the language being used here is very exacting based on where Yeshua was likely located when this conversation took place, right after he resurrects the widow's son and name. Like I said, it's in the lower Galilee. Why did Yeshua have so much compassion for the widow, her young? And it says her only begotten. Well, obviously, you know, that title's attached to Yeshua, the only begotten son. But the geography tells us a whole lot. This just happens to be the location that in ancient times was known as Shunem. Shunem. You've heard of the Shunemite woman? Well, remember, she and her husband, they had no children. But Elisha, who hung out a lot in Carmel, he would travel through Shunem. There's a, there's a highway through there if he's going to some other place in the lower Galilee or even traveling down to Judea, he would have passed through Shunem frequently. And so apparently he travels through there so frequently that the widow notices and says to her husband, not the widow, the, the Shunemite woman who doesn't have a son or a daughter yet, notices and tells her husband, let's build him his own room on top of our house. And so they do. They build an Elisha room. And Elisha says, what can I do for you? You've been so kind for me, so kind to me. And, and of course, they don't have any children. And so he prophesies, you're going to have a child. 
And they do. They have a son who grows. And as a young man, he goes out in the field and all of a sudden he says, my head, my head. And then he dies. And, you know, the, the widow, not the, I keep saying widow, uh, the woman, the Shunammite woman, she puts him on the bed and then she goes to, to seek out Elisha. And of course, we know Elisha is able, he, he tries several things to resurrect the boy from the dead. It seems as though at first he doesn't want to touch him because he's dead. He's, he's going to incur uh, ritual uncleanness if he touches the dead son. So at first he's, he's trying to get Gehazi to do stuff and touch him with his staff, but eventually he, he stretches out over him and, you know, call, is able to call forth the young man from the dead. Yeshua, on the other hand, he comes back to the same place, which was Shunam, which is now being called Nain. He notices the coffin He's approaching the gates of the city of Nain, and he approaches the coffin, and this is the the only begotten son of this widow, and he just speaks directly to him. He just like, get up, boy, (laughs) young man, arise. So that, that geography is telling us a whole lot, and it should have said a whole lot more to Shimon the Pharisee and to the townspeople who were saying, why does he think he can forgive sins? This Resurrection from the dead is probably occurring in maybe about the exact same spot where Elisha resurrected the young boy from the dead. They've even named the mountain Navi prophet after the event. And then Shimon says, if he were a prophet, the hill of Moreh, the hill of the teacher, say it, teacher. You see how often we can walk in Torah, but then we are completely oblivious to the fact that. This is an opportunity. We've studied the words, but we've never internalized them. Or somehow we didn't expect to see something that manifest in our lives right in front of us. You talk about a kiss on the cheek right here. That's important. The geography is important. So we've got a young son. The Shunammite's son was born in the spring, which would have probably been around the time of Passover. I have a hunch that when this alabaster incident occurred, along with the resurrection of the young man, the widow's son from the dead, I assume, and I think it's a reasonable assumption or a reasonable belief, that this happened sometime just around the time of Passover. And the, the common theme here is resurrection from the dead. What is the theme of Passover? For us, resurrection from the dead. When will the second alabaster woman anoint Yeshua six days before Passover. And then it would be three more days until his resurrection from the dead. So it's entirely possible. I mean, this is, you don't sign your name to something like this. This is just thinking out loud based on the the matching context. It's entirely possible that this first alabaster woman anointed Yeshua six days before Passover. It's entirely possible. So that's the question. How does this alabaster woman No. And why does the writer include the fact? Watch how many times it says this. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to eat with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, was, was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, hmm, 
So the reclining at the table, that should ring a bell to you. If, if you've been keeping Passover, you're probably familiar with the custom that at Passover, everybody's supposed to recline. On that night, we are rich men. We are free people. We are free people. That's the, you know, you as you drink the cups of wine or grape juice, you know, you lean to the side, you're, you're reenacting the, the ancient Seder where they would recline like free people. Slaves were, you know, they would stand by and serve. They weren't allowed to do that. So by reclining at the Seder table, you're signifying that, that Adonai has freed us, not just from Egypt, but we understand he's freed us from the law of sin and death. But this is exactly the spark that the text says it took. It says when she learned that he was reclining at the table. Well, if we take that back to the Psalm of Psalms where the king has brought me to his banqueting table and that he's pouring out his perfumes. Somehow this woman that everybody thinks is a sinner, her spiritual radar is the only one that picks up on what's happening here. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.